0: This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2.
1: If we think back to the start of 2020, almost every inch of New South Wales was under smoke. But the south coast of New South Wales was particularly hard hit. Two thirds of the entire far south coast burned, with Yoruba Shire losing more homes than any other local council area in the nation. By February 16, when all the fires were finally extinguished, Four lives had been lost, 501 homes destroyed, and 79 percent of Eurobodalla Shire had been burned. Chrissy Ginnery and her family were living in the Batemans Bay area, and she's recorded her experiences and the experiences of many of her friends and family in a new book called "When the Smoke Clears: Surviving the Australian Bushfires." Welcome, Chrissy. Oh, thank you, thank you. Great to have you with us, Chrissy.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here, Katrina.
1: So, look, on the south coast, fires were burning as early as November. Can you take us back to Christmas last year? Where were things out on the south coast then?
0: Oh, gosh, by Christmas I think we'd been under a, a sky of smoke for about at least six weeks and, and we'd just been living under this cloud of smoke and this constant get-ready-to-evacuate you know, the fire's coming from this direction, the fire's coming from this direction, and it was just constant
1: like that. Yeah, it must have been hard just living with that threat for so long. Did people almost get a little bit complacent about it? It's funny you
0: should say that because at first we were freaking out. Understandably, if you told, you know, your house could catch fire, you you are so diligent and so everybody was um, getting ready, people were already being evacuated and and uh, some like my youngest daughter had been evacuated three times by then. And to tell you the truth, by the third time I think I'll just pack a bag. You know, but the first time it was like pack a van, you know, like everything we're gonna lose the lot. So it was it was quite dramatic and I guess it was that emotionally exhausting. That you kind of had to take it lighter in the end, or you just would have been, you just would have been worn out, really. Mm.
1: Mm. So by the time you know New Year's Eve rolled around, um, you'd been living in this state for quite a while. That night, of course, and, and New Year's Day was catastrophic. Can you describe that night and, and then what you found the next day when you arrived at your daughter Khalida's house on New Year's Day?
0: Yeah, well, it was pretty full on because on New Year's Eve um, there was like black leaves falling everywhere and you could walk on the grass and it was crispy. It would crunch under your feet. So it was almost like if you struck a match you could just poof, see everything explode and, of course, everything did explode on New Year's Eve. And the fires were just rampant, and they went so fast and so far that we just weren't one prepared and two equipped to cope with what happened. Is the two fires that we had? We had one burning south and one burning west. They they had joined together by then, so they were just this wall that was not to be reckoned with. And of course, it swept down through the town. And this, we we were prepared that morning. Um, for it to come in the afternoon, and it pretty well came at 7 o'clock before anyone even got out of bed. And it was just like whoosh, you know, I'm taking everything in my path. I had another daughter down south who had filmed the sky and thought, okay, I've got time, and went back, re-looked at the sky, and there were under a cloud of smoke and a wall of flame coming at them. So they just covered their faces with tea towels, and quickly packed what they could and were going to try and get to us but couldn't, but we didn't know that. So they were missing to us for 24 hours. They just, they went south and we didn't know whether they were gone. The other daughter, Kalita, whose home was in Catalina, they were trying to get home and they were trapped in the fires in their caravan for three hours. And finally, when they got through, they got there to see the final embers just... um, burning their home out of control. And, of course, in all this time, it kind of almost sounds calm in the telling, but there was spot fires breaking out everywhere, there was embers falling, there was um, no communication. So actually people on the outside, even on the other side of the world, were hearing more about it than we were. So our towers were down. We had no power So we had no power, no communication. Every now and again a text would come through and, of course, I got the call to say your daughter's house has burnt down and we couldn't get to her until the the next day. You know, that was just devastating Mm -hmm. to not be able to comfort your own child, you know.
1: Yeah, that sense of um, the confusion, the lack of communication, the continual second-guessing, that really comes through in your book. Um, And then, of course... Eventually the next day you do go to try and find your daughter. What did you see when you arrived at her house?
0: Oh, gosh. Um, I I remember not being able to get out soon enough, get out of the car. When we initially got there, my daughter wasn't there and she had actually gone with her hubby and three children to look at their burnt, well, there was nothing left then, just the charred remains of their home to allow their children to attempt to come to grips with it. So we then went looking and we saw her home gone and, you know, just the devastation of the neighbourhood, trees down, trees still burning, smoke everywhere, traffic lights were out in town. And when we finally got back to where she was staying, um, we saw in the front yard with Harper, her eldest, and just ran and hugged and cried and, oh, gosh, and her hubby had videoed the last of their, their home burning and I think we just watched it a couple of times just stunned, staring at his phone going, where are we? What What is this? You know, how can this be real?
1: Yeah, full on. One of the things in all that confusion that, that came through as well was trying to make this decision, trying to second guess, do we stay and defend our house or do we evacuate? Can mm-hmm. you take us through what the thought process was for you in your situation?
0: Yeah, well, Katrina, if it was just my hubby and I, I think we, we might have been able to make decisions easier. You know, we're 60 years old. We felt comfortable and confident. But <laughs> once we saw what, what was happening up north, Conjola had already been taken out. We were just like, there's no way we can battle this thing. But we had my mum with us and she was 83 years old and by now all roads are blocked, so there was nowhere for her to go. She's afraid of water and we had a swimming pool here and our road, there's only one way in. So if we were to attempt to choose to evacuate in the middle of it, there was nowhere to go. So the first time we thought, we're gonna tough this out, we can go to the pool. We had sprinklers on the roofs, we had a generator because the power was out. We, we thought, you know, we were milking water from the dam and um, we are doing everything that we thought was going to work and mum's got a little Ziploc pack in her pocket with her licence and her money and, and I'm realising the severity of this situation, thinking this is just ridiculous. Mum's afraid of water anyway and our plan was to jump in the swimming pool and hope a fire went over our head, not even thinking about how it just sucks the air right out of, sucks the oxygen right out of the air and we all would have possibly passed out and drowned anyway. So it was just all those sort of decisions that you were constantly confronted with every morning you woke up. Mm.
1: And so you did eventually make the decision to evacuate, um, considering all those factors. What did you find when you arrived at the Coach House Evacuation Centre in Batemans Bay?
0: Yeah, once my daughter's house had burnt down, we were not going to play with fire. We knew instantly we're leaving. Next threat to our our um, little suburb, we're going. First you went to the evacuation centre and you had to register and find somewhere to either camp in your car. Hundreds, thousands camping in their car. A lot of the elderly were taken to the library. And remember, this is pitch black because the sky is black like night and all power is out. So inside buildings it's just dark you know so a lot of the elderly were there on little bunks and things and and we were blessed we we got a cabin I oh, will personally we we got a van that we can sleep in so we slept in our van but um three of our children ended up with cabins and my mum was able to go into a cabin and we got it for three days and then it was extended to five because where we are on a farm if you have no electricity you therefore have no water Mm. because you need the electricity to get the water into your house. And um, it just wasn't worth it, you know, trying Mm. to live without anything, no power, no water, you know, no communication. It was just too stressful.
1: So, look, 11 of your 14 grandchildren were in the area during the fires. I wanted to ask how did it impact on the kids, you know, psychologically and emotionally living with this extended threat, losing their home in some cases or being evacuated to this bizarre sort of setting of, of living in a cabin while everything around you burns?
0: Yeah, well, Katrina, at first it, it seemed like um, they were coping okay. Of course, long term, you know, there's other, there's another story. But at the time, during it, uh, it was such a relief for our family to be together. Mm. You know, our daughter that went missing down south, that they, they were camped on the other side of the Maruya River, and so we never even knew if they were alive until the next day after that day. Um, that was just torture for all of us. And even the girls, even though they're teenagers, were saying, you know, that was just too much. We did not enjoy that at all but it was like once we got in the cabins and the grandkids were able to play together it's almost like through play they were role playing some of the the trauma they were experiencing which was really healthy and just to be able to cut loose and have fun and you know play in the sand catch a soldier's crab just distractions for them it was a relief for us all
1: mm. Um, one of the things that you express um, a lot in the book is just your gratitude to people who came to help. Um, could you share with us maybe a story of just one person who made a difference to your family during this time?
0: Yeah, well, Katrina, that help is still coming, of course. Um, so there's been, there's been a lot of people, oh, God bless Australia, truly generous, beautiful people. The one, I guess, particularly was, um, was Matt he just had it on his heart to come and help. And he even got the sizes of the children's clothing, you know, what sex are the children, what sizes are there, you know, because remember my daughter that lost her home with her three children, they were on holidays. So they were camping when their house burnt down. Now, you don't take anything decent when you go camping. And so they had no clothes. They just had their cozies and a few, you know, of your daggy hang-around clothes. So... He drove through roadblocks with this gear. He came through and, and just somehow managed to arrive like a knight in showing armour. And he, he had a ute full of stuff that all his neighbours and friends and then a trailer load. And he dumped half of it up in Conjola where, um, you know, hundreds of homes were lost there. We lost 501 houses. So, you know, we have plenty of people to give it to. Once we took what we needed for, for um, our family, we set up a makeshift centre where people could come and shop without money, my six-year-old um, grandson called it, shopping without
1: money. He loved it. That's beautiful. I mean, often the, you hear that these kind of extreme events bring a community closer together. You know, has that, has that been the case? And has there also been a role for churches to reach out to people?
0: Oh, absolutely, Katrina. And prior to COVID, I would have said to you, you know, we'd all be living happily ever after because... We were helping one another. People were pooling together. As I said, I live in a van, so, you know, I was living in a van before I was living here at the Love Shack. So the van I could use, I'd fill it up at the army and just drive it around to all the people I knew who'd lost homes and some were just in motel rooms and some, oh, gosh, living conditions crazy. People just crammed in wherever they could fit. And it was just beautiful and just This universal language where you just hug and and share a tear, you know. Of course, COVID robbed that. So, you know, but at the time, that's what was happening in the whole town. It didn't matter who you were or what situation you were in. It was like no one could do enough for you and it was just beautiful. And, of course... Churches all over Australia were saying, how can we help? What can we do? And uh, I'm blessed. My my son-in-law, I don't do law, so he's not my son-in-law, but my son-in-law and daughter, they're our senior ministers here in Batemans Bay. So they already had an account set up and their account's called Beyond. So it meant anything outside of church we, we sow. So churches were able to put money into that account, which was perfect because what happened then Anyone who was in desperate need rather than waiting on the charities to figure out what they were going to do with what was donated to them, bang, you can have a generator, bang, you can have a washing machine, bang, we'll get you a water tank, instant. It was just beautiful.
1: Mm. Well, that's good to hear. And what about for your daughter who who lost her home, Kalita and her family, like how are they going now?
0: Yeah, well, they... um, Where are we? We're eight months on, Katrina, and they've lived in six different places. Mm. So it's been quite quite traumatic, let's face it. Moving houses, traumatic enough when, you know, Mm. three children, one, six, one, four, one, two. So it has been full on. But right now they are in a beautiful little home. They're renting it for 12 months. They've been able to put the furniture that's been donated and given to them. Been able to set it up, and for the first time, they moved in on the 11th of July. So we're only talking two weeks. For the first time, they've had their own furniture in their own home (laughs) with their own toys for the first time. And so, there you can see the difference. You can see the weight
1: lifted off their shoulders.
0: It's only 12 months. But 12 months is forever after what they've been through.
1: Yeah. Would you say there's any sense of normalcy returning or do you think, like, things have changed forever?
0: Um, Some individuals, absolutely. You know, some some have started rebuilding, some have started, um, uh, just bought a new house and just trying to get on with it. For Kalida and her crew, absolutely a sense of normalcy just beginning now. Mm. Um, I think there's something... Really grounding about being able to say this is my towel and my shirt and my toothbrush and my bathroom. Can't you know? Just and, and I'm going to go to my bedroom and have a rest. I think that's so grounding, and we we need that kind of vibe.
1: Thank you so much for sharing so much of your story. I guess you've written this book to share not only your own story but the stories of so many other people who experienced extreme loss and trauma in the bushfires. What do you want people to get out of your book?
0: I want them to get hope. I want them to know that there is always hope. No matter how desperate a situation is, there's always hope. And in all this story, you know, it's been like a roller coaster. You know, one minute we're all rebuilding, the next minute everyone's pulled back. Then we're allowed to have our visitors so our cafes open and then COVID, they're all pulled back. So we've kind of been in this vortex and then, you know, trauma and then, oh, okay, we can get back to normal. No, we can't. And as you know, the COVID rules, they change daily. So there's all that shaking around for our small businesses that um, really haven't earned a real income since November last year when tourists were told to go home in in December. Everything's packed, then everything was ghost town. Everything came back, then everything's ghost town. So we've kind of had all that going on it's hard to say where we're at and where we're going but in the book the answer is hope and the answer is turning to God and the answer is acceptance and being able to say yeah I will receive that gift from you even now we we gave out 100 quilts just um last month to five victims because it's winter and um Even that was, was, you know, people were almost reluctant still to be able to receive. The funny Aussie way is um, you always think there's someone worse than you. It's like, no, give it to someone who needs it. It's like, hello, you're in a tent. (laughs) You've got nothing. You need it. (laughs) Big hearts
1: in our people, isn't there? Well, thank you so much, Chrissy. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for letting us know what's happening down on the south coast. I mean, you've given voice to a lot of people in, in your book. And I hope that's going to be at least a little bit cathartic for them to, to tell their stories.
0: Yeah, I am getting beautiful feedback, Katrina. People mm. who were even nervous to read it at first because those of us down here were still in the middle of it. You know, the world goes on but not here. Mm. And, and they're almost nervous to start reading it but shed a few tears and, um, you know, start to rebuild from the inside out. And I really wrote it, you know, because God is so good and people are so kind and life is worth living. And to see people just be able to rise with hope, to be able to receive help and, and, um, you know, find a way to give as well. And so in the book there's also information counselling information of the stage of grief you might be at and where you can go from there. So little tips for people to be able to move forward and definitely the call to trust God. He is a good God.
1: Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much, Chrissy. I've been speaking with Chrissy Ginnery. She's a survivor of the South Coast bushfires and she shares her story and the story of many other local residents too in her new book. It's called When the Smoke Clears, Surviving the Australian Bushfires.